Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. I am Al Levy, and with me is someone that I have known for a very long time and who I have been told to fear for a very long time, but I've never known him in a way that I should fear him. I've always known him as just a badass, intelligent guy that I should be on good terms with rather than fear and a good person to know because from everything I've ever known about him, he's one of the most prolific entertainment attorneys in the world, period. One of the most knowledgeable, too, and also one of the most approachable because I don't know how many of you guys have had the the fortune of having to look for an entertainment lawyer maybe before you were signed or before you had a career and not gotten your calls returned? Eric is a very, uh, very humane lawyer and a very cool dude. So let me introduce you, Mr. Eric German. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you very much. That's a wonderful introduction. And all I can say is a leopard can't hide its spots. So uh, I think uh, sometimes when you look at the legal community, I feel like I come from the music world. And, uh, you know, so there it is. It can only just be myself. And I, and I really appreciate you having me on. Well, you seem to really love music. Then, see, the, the places that I've bumped into you the most have been you out and about, not necessarily shopping for bands or anything, just out and about enjoying nightlife, enjoying music, just having fun. And occasionally I'll see you like in a conference room at a label or something. But by and large, my interactions have been Eric's out having fun, enjoying the music life. Well, you have to do what you love, right? And they say if you if you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. And, uh, you know, I grew up a, a metalhead kid, you know, hanging out at bonfires in the woods with a boombox listening to the Slayer. And, uh, you know, it just became my life. I obviously, you know, went to law school and did very well in law school and had the luxury at some point of finding a way to synthesize the, the two worlds. You know, the passion for uh, what started the passion is heavy for heavy metal music and became the passion for music and the music business generally. It, uh, you know, being able to do that for a living to uh, feed my family, pay my mortgage and uh, have a career in music is, is a great blessing. That's really, really fun. You're, fun is definitely the right word. I, uh, Did you go straight into entertainment law? Well, straight, you know, I went to college. I grew up, if you want to go way back, I grew up in upstate New York playing in, you know, hair down in my ass, playing in uh, Metallica derivatives metal bands right in fact mm -hmm. i just saw jason bittner joined overkill as the new drummer if you guys know the thrash metal band yeah. overkill and that was a guy that i have a tape uh in in a drawer of a rehearsal that we were jamming with jason we were playing overkill covers in probably 1987 something like that but like there are uh 
you know, I, I loved it. I mean, I was in it, and, you know, where other kids were working on cars and other kids were out messing around and other kids were uh, into sports. You know, we I took three guitar lessons a week for, you know, five years in my teens and, uh, you know, did everything I could to play music. So, you know, when, when you say, did I go right into law, I went to college because I come from an academic family. I went to Syracuse University in 1988. And by the way, God bless... Rest his soul, uh, Chris Cornell passed away. Oh, man. I don't know when this is going to come out, but, uh, yeah. you know, somebody, so a lot of my college friends are talking about us going to see a show with Chris Cornell, with Soundgarden opening for Voivod back in 1990. And that just reminds me of all the shows I saw. I mean, I've seen it all. I've seen Metallica with Cliff Burton. I've seen and being on the Power Slave Tour, Judas Priest, and Black Sabbath, Born Again, and, you know, cool stuff, right? So I just lived all that stuff. And when I went to Syracuse University in 1988 and graduated in 1992, in the middle of that, apropos of what happened last night, Seattle Grunge happened, right? And just killed, quote-unquote, Metal Dead. And I was looking for ways to connect with the community that I had left behind and my old friends, you know, I went to school and it was much more what I guess the terms we used back then was sort of jock preppy type uh, atmosphere in college. I joined a fraternity and all that stuff and had a great time and have lots of wonderful college friends, but you know, I missed the ability to connect with metal. And by the time Headbangers ball wound down and metal wasn't on the radio anymore after Nirvana sort of killed metal dead, it was hard to, to, you know, I still wanted to get the new Overkill record or the new Sabotage record. And there wasn't too many people that wanted to discuss that with me. So I found the Internet and uh, the earliest, earliest incarnations of the Internet pre-America Online. There was something called like CompuServe. And oh, yeah. And I found Prodigy. <laughs> yeah. And I found these uh, message boards, Usenet news groups that were like alt.metal.heavy and stuff like that. And I started corresponding with kids in Europe and uh, trading cassette tapes back and forth uh, in the mail. And I was turned on to all of the European metal, you know, the At The Gates and all the Gothenburg scene stuff and, and Flames and, uh, and then the American stuff like Iced Earth. And I was wondering where one of my favorite bands called Sanctuary had, had gone to and I learned of Nevermore and, you know, all of this cool stuff in the 90s. And, you know, it, it, it got me to thinking about the idea that music was going to transform from physical to digital and that uh, you could unite scenes and it wouldn't matter anymore if something was mainstream or if the, you know, the, the radio conglomerates or the television network executives decided to put something on the air because you could unite a scene. And even if there were 50,000 people that cared about the iced earth record, us 50,000 people could find each other around the world through this crazy thing called the internet. So I became obsessed with the idea that I need to learn everything I possibly could about copyright law, about music, about technology and the internet. And the most important place and the best place I could do that was in law school. So I worked for a concert promoter from 92 to 94. And in the fall of 94, I joined, and by the way, so many cool concerts we did back then. <laughs> That's a, probably another conversation, but we, uh, I joined, I went to Boston University School of Law in the fall of 1994 and paired up and became the research assistant for the leading copyright scholar, a woman named Wendy Gordon. And, uh, you know, from there just dove in, got my first email address and just became obsessed with this idea that music was all going to happen through a computer. 
And uh, by the time I graduated in 97, it was really game on. So you could really see the future. Well, I don't know if I saw the future, but I, I saw where I wanted to be. And I saw, you know, again, it, it's really kind of corny and you could call it prescient, but I love the idea. You know, I was always probably questing. And I think what I was probably drawn to metal music was the idea of community and that bond that happens. And you talk about the nightlife and going to shows to this day. I mean, to me, there's nothing better than standing next to uh, George Valley, you know, and, and I love George. <laughs> and watching Metallica, which I'm about to do this weekend at Rock on the Range, you know, like to me, that bonding and that brotherhood and all that corny stuff that you learn as a kid, you know, to me, it was, you know, brothers in denim and leather and forever, right? So, I found a way to mold sort of my academic upbringing. My parents, my whole family are very, uh, you know, academic and collegiate and all that. I found a way to meld that kind of learning because I always wanted to use my brain with the idea of how could I contribute to, to music. And, uh, you know, at the, in law school, I did very, very well, thank God. And uh, uh, I, because probably because I did the same thing over and over, I wrote hundreds of papers and researched everything I could about what I called at the time the celestial jukebox, which, you know, we call the cloud today, and the copyright implications of, of getting music through a computer. And by the time I was done, again, I went to, I clerked for this judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then I got a job in New York City for a big law firm that had a client called the Recording Industry Association of America, and they were gearing up for a massive piece of litigation against a tech company called Napster. And because that seemed to be, you know, ground zero for the copyright wars, it was almost like my personal crusade. And I chose that firm and went to work there and became the baby lawyer on the Napster case. And, uh, you know, I could keep going. This is fascinating, man. I had no idea. Oh, well, thank Do you. Do you mind talking about that a little more? No, not at all. So, you know, we, we, and I can talk about that case, which was obviously a big deal. CNN was covering every hearing. It was a cover of Time Magazine. I was the kid, the baby lawyer on the case, but I was right there in it. And by the time we won that case in the summer, fall-ish, you know, somewhere in 2001, I was living in New York, and uh, I, I think you know my wife, Lauren, oh, yeah. and uh, she and I uh, had been married for a time, but we were thinking about having a kid. And Tell her I say hi, by the way. <laughs> I will, thank you. <laughs> I will. Um, the uh, we were we were pretty interested in the possibility of having a kid, but maybe not doing so in New York. And then something happened. A couple planes hit the twin towers, and New York suddenly became this repulsive, disgusting place for a moment, where tanks were rolling down Eighth Avenue, and I could literally smell death wafting up between the buildings. And on September eighteenth, two thousand one, I, I interviewed for a job because. The, one of the heads of civil litigation at the RIAA had gone and become a partner at a firm in Los Angeles called Mitchell Silverberg and Knapp, where I'm currently a partner and I work now. And the, 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 the new work post Napster was moving to be centered there. Uh, they were taking on a, a, a company called Kazaa. I remember them. Right. So uh, that case went to the Supreme Court of the United States and the recording industry won. And I left. I, I, I said, check, please, on New York City at the end of uh, September 01. I moved out here and started at my firm in 2002, uh, to, you know, worked on that case. After that case ended, 
the strategy changed and the recording industry now was going to sue grandmothers and teenagers and individual end users, right? And that was a big deal at the time. And I got named National Coordinating Counsel for End User Lawsuits. And what was that? That meant I was supervising litigation in 200 jurisdictions around the country and ghostwriting briefs and helping local counsel deal with lots and lots and lots of very small cases against people who downloaded music. And, you know, for better or for worse, the politics of it all, and I don't, I don't want to be too critical of the industry or of a client, but for me personally, it wasn't exactly where I wanted to be, where uh, that, that kind of defense of heavy metal music. And I, I, I think I appreciated the creative aspects of music a lot more. Yeah. And I wanted not to be the internet police, but instead I wanted to be closer to the creative process and to making cool things happen. And so, yeah, you don't strike me as the dude who wants to sit there and, and give away penalties to people for, you know, it, it, it's sort of like traffic tickets, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, and, and yes, people are going to always speed, but if there's a cop sitting in the bushes handing out a ticket every once in a while, maybe people will slow down, but that wasn't what I was put on the earth <laughs> to do, but yeah. it was literally what I was doing. So, you know, at that point, I probably met you somewhere around there when I moved out to L.A. Yeah, we've met sometime in the past 10-ish years. Right. So at, at that point, I got kind of, uh, you know, a little disillusioned with what I was doing. And uh, frankly, a couple cool things happened. I got the opportunity to work on a really cool case that we brought in for a major uh, video game company and a big First Amendment case, and I had a couple of big wins, worked for a big, uh, another piece of litigation for a big television show, and a lot of stuff for major recording artists, and all of it kind of, you know, win after win and high-profile copyright thing, I got the sort of anointed, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I got made partner at my firm, and that happened in January 2007, and that allowed me some flexibility and some freedom to kind of change things up, and, uh, do what I wanted to do. And my first thing I was doing around that time was focusing on independent music because I noticed that the internet had leveled the playing field, that uh, indie bands and labels were having a lot more success. And those labels didn't, they may have number one records or top 10 records, but they didn't have armies of in-house counsel already at the helm. So they could afford my services due to their success and at the uh, success. And at, at the same time, they had, uh, the ability to, uh, uh, they didn't have people on retainer or, or on staff. And so started taking on label side representation for Indies for a long period of time. And I actually went to bring up Bittner again and not to make uh, too much of him, but uh, he was playing a show uh, with Shadows Fall opening for Damage Plan at uh, the House of Blues in Los Angeles. And this was probably a couple weeks before Dime died because I remember when did I don't know when Dime died. Two thousand four, I think. Okay, or so five. somewhere around there, I met the probably because I remember we went out to the Rainbow. We're hanging with Dime and Vinny afterwards. It was a super cool night. But the uh, Oliver Vitoft, who was the president of Central Media Records, and Robert Kampf were there because Shadowfall was having amazing success at that time. And we had gone to the show. We were kind of in the dressing room drinking some beers. And uh, I met these guys. I started talking to them about, uh, you know, what I was doing and what my background was. And I think they were impressed that I knew all the bands and I knew the music, yet I had the background that I had and that I was so passionate about their label. And uh, 
they had a few different issues that they needed help with. They brought me on to uh, solve that. By the way, In This Moment just got their first gold record. I saw that. Gold record this week. And I recall way back at the beginning of that time. Congratulations to everybody involved with that. Right. And it's a big deal. And yes. In This Moment had uh, some, some particular legal issues as they were just starting to come out with their debut. And I had stepped in because I knew a guy named Blasco who was managing the band at the time. And of course, I had the relationship with the label. They brought me in to handle that, and that went well. And it just started a relationship with uh, Century Media where they put me on a retainer and I became sort of their quasi, you know, go-to guy for a little while there. And, uh, it, you know, that relationship persists today, but they taught me everything. And at one point, Robert and Oliver just kind of invested in me and taught me all the labels. I mean, from the label perspective, all of the, uh, you know, what a record deal looks like and how to do all that. And I guess at that point, I had gotten pretty excited about the idea of working with artists. Uh, again, I was working with these independent labels. I helped to, at the beginning, help to put together something called the American Association of Independent Music. It's labeled A2IM, and I'm counsel to them to this day. And that's, uh, I think at this time, it's 400 and change, maybe pushing 500 American record labels. It's Trade Association uh, based out of New York City. They're putting on an event next month, the uh, Indie Music Week, and something called the Lactera Awards, which is kind of like the Independent Spirit Awards is to film for music. So it's pretty cool stuff, and that's a great organization. I got involved with something called uh, Merlin at its inception. Merlin is a rights licensing organization, a digital rights licensing organization for thousands of record labels worldwide. And they do, you know, and negotiate the, the 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 deals with all of the big players in in digital music, including like Spotify and earlier MySpace and YouTube and Beats and things like that. And so, getting to work with those companies, with Century Media, those other two companies, I just learned a ton on uh, uh, of label side indie music. And you know, I still wasn't working with artists directly, but at some point, I got hired work on a case for a band called Metal Shop, who changed their name to Metal School, who uh, became Steel Panther. Yep. And that was one of the first artists I ever worked with. It was a great uh, experience to work with them. I still work with them to this day. And, uh, you know, from there, it just opened the floodgates, and I started working with, with artists and bands and producers and publishers and the whole deal. And today, I think I represent about 37 artists. Uh, I have a few producer clients, some publishing clients, some songwriters, uh, a lot of them in hard rock and heavy metal, but also uh, some hip hop, some alt indie rock, some uh, EDM, you know, cool stuff. The roster's full. Indeed. Well, that's quite a story. I, I, didn't I didn't know some of that about your story. The more you learn, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, <laughs> I know uh, uh, a lot about you. I've watched your rise and your success. It's been very, very cool. I, Thank you. In fact, I particularly remember going to a uh, a Warp Tour somewhere, Pomona or something like that, and, and, the, and you had just produced a record that was really popping off. And I remember seeing you and just, like, the, you know, feeling a sense of pride because clearly you elevated yourself. You took things into your own hands. You said... This is what I'm going to do. I mean, I think I knew you when you were doing Goth from, uh, you were on Roadrunner. Yeah. Then we got switched over to Century. To Century. Yeah. And I remember all of that. 
uh, experience because my, one of my very good friends uh, was the in-house counsel at Roadrunner and I was doing a lot of work for them. And, uh, you know, I watched you go from that situation into something uh, a lot more elevated and it was super cool. And I was listening to your podcast with uh, Doc Coyle mm-hmm. and I listened to the recent one with Blasco as well. And I could just hear the theme coming across and how you have that mutual respect and they have that respect for you of people that find a way to reinvent themselves along the way. So it's been a cool ride. And I guess that's the cool thing about getting older is it gives you perspective, right? You can see the whole story, not just the first chapter of the book, but uh, well, you know, we're, getting, we're getting a good taste of it. The way I see it, in lots of ways I see it, is imagine if I was 37 that I am now and was still trying with my band, and we weren't much bigger than we were then. Time had elapsed the same way, but except I was older and we were older, and we were still trying to get that second out of five slot, or the first out of four slot, or maybe still paying tour support to get that direct support slot in Europe for Fear Factory or something. And no... You know, no, I, I it's brutal. There's that meme going around right now, though. For you, you see where it shows the girl that says, uh, "You know, yeah, uh, you're in a band." I know that meme. That meme's hilarious. That meme is hilarious. I stopped with the band when I was thirty or thirty-one, and because it was just like, okay, I've done it. Enough's enough. I like. There's factors outside of my control, which will determine how big the band could get. Like. Wrong place, wrong time with society. You know, you can't control that kind of stuff. You know, the way that Mitch was. You can try. You can try, but there's only one Mitch from Suicide Silence, right? Timing timing is a huge issue with all of this. And I can tell you that when uh, I see bands come across, come through my office all the time, because people think that uh, all they have to do is meet someone who's connected, and that will take care of everything for them. But that is one of the biggest, you know, myths slash fictions in music. I can't make your band be popular. No. I can, for Gasoline on the Flame, I can connect the dots. I can take something that's that's happening. If, if people are reacting to your music, people are pulling out their wallets and spending money on you. If people are genuinely enthused, like your friends and family beyond that, like they literally want to listen to this for entertainment. Okay. But that's, you did that. I didn't do that. You give that to me. And I can make something happen and get you paid. Uh, but if, you know, if that's not happening, there's nothing I can do. And I get a parade of people coming through my office trying to think that that's what they need. They met me out somewhere or they know a friend or something. Can you help me? The answer is I, I can provide well, legal services. <laughs> yeah, that's not your job. <laughs> register your trademarks. <laughs> I can't get you a record deal necessarily, and I certainly can't make you be famous in but but with those people sometimes I, I try to get to the heart of what is it that you really want man what is this urge to be on stage I mean I've always wondered why some people you see out you see like groupies or something and they're they're so excited about the guy that played bass on the second you know uh, uh, you know D-level death metal album <laughs> and I just I don't understand what is it about this glamour that both the fans and I mean but obviously that's what music is is fueled that's the economy of music is fueled on this unrealistic un uh uh you know doesn't make sense or not logical just passion for this stuff and again I just told you my whole life was built upon that passion 
So yeah. I, I understand, but I try to say to these people, what is it that you want? Do you want to be famous? Do you want to... And, and some bands will say, you know, I could probably get you in Revolver Magazine and you could play the third stage of Download and maybe you're lucky you get on a Wimmerfest and probably get you a deal with label, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, is that what you want? Is that going to fill that hole inside? I don't know, right? But, the uh, you know, two people asking for your autograph, is, is that what you want? And when you get into your 30s and you start to get older, you wonder, you know, what what is the goal what is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because i have no matter where you were as you turn 30 with your band there's always someone bigger there's always some other level that exactly you're going to think you can ascend to and uh i i sometimes i really enjoy this uh this uh philosopher guy named alan watt mm-hmm. i don't know if you ever listened to this he's uh, uh the father of modern zen or whatever they say in america and uh he was a lecturer at some university in the 40s and you can find some of his stuff online and he talks about you know takes kind of eastern philosophy and boils it down to practical you know uh modern day western culture life and the the south park animators trey uh and matt did some animation to one of his lectures and one of them's called music is life or life is music or something like that and you can go on youtube and see this little cartoon video of uh south park type animation to this lecture and the point of it really is you know you got to enjoy yourself along the way you got to have fun that's the real point there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow the rainbow is the journey you know and I, not to be too much of a hippie but if you got into your 30s and you were finding that this isn't for me i really don't need to play this club second of five uh for no money and live in a van and fart on my bandmates heads and you know, fight with people and scrap and be homeless when I get home, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and everyone, I think, has to go through that and figure out, is that what they really want out of life? And, you know, it, it, it's really an interesting thing. Meanwhile, though, on the flip side, I'll just do a shout out. There are some guys that I would label your age. Doc is, is in it. John Berklin from Devil Driver is in it. A guy named Tommy Vext singing. They got a new band called Bad Wolves. They're all a certain age. They're launching a band right now. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Badass riffs. Seems like it might do something, right? The riffs uh, are phenomenal. I'm going to be managed by uh, a pretty big guy in the industry. I don't know if I want to be the one to say it or if everybody already knows, but it looks like it's going to go, or at least going to go at some little level, right? And Brooklyn's a friend. Doc's a friend. Tommy's a friend. You know, what it, What are they looking for? What do they want? What can be achieved at, you know, 30-something? I don't know, but we're going to find out because that's what they want to do. And I'm in the business of facilitating that. And hopefully, I put a few dollars in my pocket along the way. You know, and good for them, too. The thing with what they're doing also is that the music sounds fresh. It's a fresh approach for all of them. They all have had a little while to kind of, I guess... Uh, relax the the soul after leaving their main projects and uh maybe they're just not done maybe they're just not done yeah you know people are attracted to people that are comfortable in their own skin right Mm -hmm. and music is there are so many analogies even though i was married at uh 22 there are so many analogies damn young son that you will see in uh in the world, right? And it, because because you're out there seeking approval, you want people to like you, you're putting yourself out there. And, uh, uh, you know, 
at, at some point, I think that uh, people, people, you know, they either they either like it or they don't. But when you say that somebody relaxes the soul, that, that's I think people that fit, if it just feels real, you can call it authenticity. You can call it being comfortable in your own skin. You can call it doing it for the right reasons. But when people are making music, it's just rad with the focus on it being rad and just letting it come, letting it flow, letting it come to you. I think that's that's where that's a breeding ground for success. I completely agree. So I'm with that. I am actually curious to see what they do with this. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I think it's going to be a big ride. At least in the in the immediate term, the prospects look good. I can certainly understand that. What I've heard sounds great, and uh, I know. When does this air, Ayal? This will probably air within a couple of weeks. Because I think Tuesday of next week they play their debut show at Jose Mangan's. Uh, metal night in uh, in SoCal. Oh, nice! I'll be there. Maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. I can't remember. It's, uh, I believe it's the twenty fourth of May. But well, this will be within a week of that. So then uh, you can. I'm sure if you're listening to this right now, you can go online and look at Bad Wolves. Uh, videos on YouTube and yeah. if it was any good or not. Yeah, yeah, look it up. And I know how he bros some of those riffs. So uh, one of the best riff writers in metal is in ever, for a long time is in that band. Yeah, they, people don't know that John Berklin yeah. wrote most of the Devil Driver stuff. Wrote and played. Right. Even though he's the drummer, he's known for being a drummer. He's a guy, uh, multifaceted <laughs> musical talent, for sure. Yeah, he's a, he's a monster of a talent. I'm, I'm bringing him on the podcast in a couple weeks just to just to get to the bottom of it because man that guy is so talented so so talented so yeah so there's some guys in their 30s that are that are still making hay yeah even though they're not they're not playing arenas that's one of the things i i found too i recently was involved in a very large alternative rock band that made a change with a uh uh, a uh, former member and I was thinking about these guys and thinking about that process and thinking about how what, a high, what happens to a hired gun as they get to a certain age. And it's the same thing that happens at a small indie record label when you hire like a young publicist or something. These people are doing it for passion. They want to be on stage. They want to be in the business. They want to be involved with the scene or whatever that is. And they get to a certain age, though. And it's kind of like a girl that wants to get married or a guy that wants to get married and their significant, their partner says, you know, hey, hey, I don't want to get married or I don't want to have kids. I just, you know, we're just having fun. But that only hang, that can only last for so long because unrealized expectations pop up every single time. And at some point, many years have gone by and you've been a publicist at this indie metal label for 10 years or you've been a hired gun in a band for, for seven years or you've been uh, uh, dating someone with no strings attached for many, many, and at some point you say, wait a minute, I wanted something else. There's nowhere to grow. This has a national, uh, natural shelf life, and I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm mad. At, at But no one lied to you. No one told you, Bill Good. They told you what yeah. it was. There's no there's no uh, senior, senior, senior publicist at the Indiana label. You know, you're not going to grow to $350,000 a year. Uh, there's just nowhere, you know, the job is what it is. The gig to be the uh, the music, touring musician in the big alternative rock band—it just is what it is. It's not your band, man. And uh, you know, at some point, these people grow to resent that you know the situation they're in. So, I think that's a reason why it's really difficult if you get into your thirties and you haven't and you're not playing arenas. You basically most people either hang it up 
were their five finger death punch, you know, at a certain point. And or, or Slipknot or Avenged or Metallica or whatever. And, you know, to be starting out on a club level at a certain age, you know, you got to really love music. And that, I think, is, is what's happening with these guys. Anyway. I don't love it that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're clearly immersed in it and doing a lot of cool stuff around it and certainly yeah. helping other people learn. I love what I'm doing. But by the time I got done touring, I was over it. Like, I had said what I had wanted to say. I did what I wanted to do, you know. Unfortunately, my band didn't get bigger than it did, but a lot of stuff was out of my control. The stuff we did get to do was, you know, dream come true. Got to tour the world various times, put out three records on great labels, on the cover of magazines, got on Headbangers Ball, got to tour Japan, did OzFest, played European festivals. I mean, what what can I say, man? Like, And the funny thing is that's all there is, man. Yeah. You watch my. Uh, uh, it, I mean, that's all there is besides the stupid level where you're just taking baths of cash and houses and yachts and cars and planes. But the, uh, you know, for the most part, that is success, dude. And that's what I'm saying, like uh, about that uh, Alan Watt thing. The the last line of it is, you know, life is a is a is a song. It's music, and you're supposed to be singing and dancing along the way, right? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be enjoying it. And if that's not fun for you. You know, don't be doing that in order to get somewhere else because that somewhere else is probably never coming. Well, do that because you want to do that and don't do that anymore when you don't. Well, what I realized, I, I think you're exactly right, is, you know, if we're tour with a bigger band or share a bus with them, the only difference between us and them is the size of the check at the end of the night and maybe they got two more pizzas in the my wonderful aunt who uh i told you my grandmother passed away last night uh, in addition to chris cornell and uh you know i'm here in ohio because i come to rock on the range which is my favorite u.s festival it's not super heavy but it's definitely super cool and the vibe is there and the industry is there and the people to meet are there and uh you know this one's headlined by my favorite band of all time which i'll still boldly proclaim is metallica but it's also supposed to be headlined by soundgarden they were supposed to play tomorrow night. Uh, but I'm here in Ohio also because I come to see my grandmother who was 95 years old and I spent a lot of time with her. And uh, I always tie in that trip. And she passed away yesterday. But, uh, you know, she's an amazing lady. But uh, moving, I'm here with my family and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of heavy emotions and cool feelings going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you now from my aunt's house. And my other aunt always told me, who's also here, they had some success in life. They were, they started to have, you know, some nice things, a little bit of money. And I, and I remember saying to her, you know, what's it like? What, you know, being excited, but you know, that you have a, she said, man, everybody has a table. Everyone has a chair. Everyone has a car. Everyone has dishes. I just have a little bit nicer table, a little bit nicer chair. It's really not that big a deal. Right. And uh, that stuck with me. That was when I was a little kid. Yeah. I always remember. That's th- that's exactly how I felt about it. Like, so on the off chance that we get as big as Devil Driver or something, which wouldn't happen, but on the off chance that we're the next Gojira, how much bigger does it really get than what we've already done? So, okay, maybe the bus will be our own. And the money at the end of the night will be a little bigger. And we'll get to play a little longer. But... Those things aside, the the day in day out of it all, 
is exactly the same. I know. I, I could say I, I've done a lot of shit in music. I've done. Uh, I've been in recording studios. I've helped write lyrics. I've picked album art. I've debated band members. I've clearly done a lot of stuff legal. I've been in recording studios, taken audio classes, worked in a record store when those used to happen. I've quote unquote managed bands as a kid. I've played music. You know what I've never done? I've never spent one night on a tour bus. <laughs> and I never will. I mean, I don't never say never, right? But the uh, it's not appealing to me. It's not interesting to me. I want to go home and have my space. You know, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I wanted to. Hats off to those of you who could. Man, when I was in a van, I wanted to be on that bus so bad. Then when I got on the bus, I was like, hell yeah, I'm on a bus. But then after a while, it was like, okay, I'm on a bus, whatever. It's just... You got to be in it for the right reasons. Your heart's got to be in the music. If your heart's not in the music, nothing else is worth it. Listen, if my heart wasn't in music, I should be. I should be litigating, uh, you know, tech cases. I talked to one of my old uh, uh, colleagues from law school, and like I said earlier, I did very, very well in law school. I was the editor of my law review, and I had all these great opportunities. And I reconnected after twenty years with someone I had dinner with recently. And uh, he became a patent litigator. He's at a massive firm working for top stuff, you know, doing patent litigation for, uh, you know, major, major tech companies. I don't want to drop all the names because of what I'm about to say. But he said to me that one client on one matter last month, he billed a half million dollars. Right? Jesus. <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, I have better grades than you in law school, dude. No, I'm kidding. But the, uh, uh, and and he split the tab with me at dinner, right? But the uh, um, I was uh, I was thinking about that. Uh, you know, I could have done that, but I had I had to do this. Does that make sense? Again, yeah. a leopard can't hide its spots, and I'm a leopard, unfortunately. Absolutely. I love this stuff. It's just, I have to do it. Fair enough. So um, I've got some questions here from our audience for you. Do you mind if we go down some of them? No, please. Okay, so here's one from Austin Linkus, which is, what's the biggest mistakes you see producers and engineers make when working with labels and big-name artists? Well, I mean, if they're working with big-name artists, they must already have a track record of a relationship, right? You've got to keep those relationships. You, you know, I see guys kind of try to big dog situations and kind of over leverage uh, in terms of, you know, I'm holding on to the stems or I want this or, you know, I refuse to do this until that. Work with people, man. It's rock and roll. And sometimes it takes a minute to get the agreements together. Sometimes there's a little bit of uh, uh, a dynamic between the A&R guy, the manager, the lawyers, your, the producer's manager. You got to let that stuff flow. I think the biggest mistake you can do is queer the creative with too much business, right? Surround yourself, if you're working with major artists, surround yourself with business people. So you can have that pure relationship with the artist and you can focus on making a great record or making great music. Let the other people kind of buzz around each other and trip over each other to get it right. But, you know, that, that's on a short, on a big picture, kind of forest level. On a trees level, let me give you something detailed. You know, figure out who's going to do things like submit the the sound exchange letter of direction you know figure out who's gonna make sure you talk about songwriting splits if the producer is involved with songwriting above over and beyond just uh producing the record you know think details on so i guess to, to tie the two things together sure you pay attention to the details of how the money's gonna flow and who gets what and be clear about that but at the same time turn all that over to your representatives and let them handle it i agree so uh, 
Here's a question from Rodney Altenbow. And uh, he said, <laughs> I'll just give it to you in two parts. He said, biggest essentials needed to keep our asses safe. And I said, come on, dude, give me more than that. And then he said, the thing is, I don't know where to start with legal stuff. So I don't even know what to ask. So what are big things we need to worry about? Well, let's, let's talk first and foremost, right? What kind of deal are you doing? He's got a home studio. Bands come to record at his place. Is that band paying you a flat fee? You, you, first, you want to figure out, are they paying you a flat fee to, uh, to take away a creative, uh, a creative product that they, that they own at the end? Are they uh, coming to you for songwriting or are they coming to you for, just for production? You want to figure those things out, right? You want to also think about, are they, uh, you know, is this something you're doing on spec? Or is this something they're paying you up front for? Or are they going to pay you if they get a record deal? And if so, what are the terms of that going to be? Those, those are kind of the essentials. Really, how many songs are you doing? How, how much are you getting paid up front? How much of that is recording costs versus a so-called producer advance? Are you getting back-end points? What is the situation with songwriting? How do you want to be credited? The rest is kind of uh, details. Great. Luis Jamie Flores is wondering, if I do cover songs on YouTube, what measures should I take to make sure I don't get any copyright infringement issues? <laughs> That's, I mean, first of all, let, let's just talk about the basics of copyright, right? Um, it is a, uh, a serious issue, the, the, the distinction between a cover and an and a interpolation. We, everybody knows that you can cover anybody's music that's already been released by getting a so-called statutory mechanical license, which under the Copyright Act allows you to perform. So if I want to do Van Halen, Van talking about love, the, uh, the death metal version, I can do it. You can't change it and make what's called a derivative work. You can't go too far. But if you're doing a quote-unquote straight cover, you just pay a fee uh, and register with uh, the Harry Fox organization or something like that, and you're, uh, and you're good to go. The uh, YouTube creates, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, what you can't do with a cover, though, and there is no statute. And by the way, what I mean by statutory license is important. Statutory means it's, 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 it's already pre-agreed. It's set by law. And anyone can do it. You don't need permission of the original authors to, to do it, right? That's the cool part. What, what's called a sync license means when you take audiovisual works and you synchronize them to audio sounds. So if you're creating a music video or if you're putting a song in a television commercial or a film or you know, a television show, something like that, if you're syncing up music to audiovisual, i.e. pictures, uh, moving pictures that that become that requires a different license, it's a sync license. So if you do that cover and you get that statutory mechanical license, and you're doing the death metal version of "Ain't Talking About Love," you can't make a video without their permission. You do have to go seek them and ask them to do that, right? So what about YouTube? Because YouTube is in effect the de facto streaming music service for a lot of people. Um, what happens when you're getting that mechanical license yet you're putting a video on YouTube? That would be a violation of the sync uh, license, right? And that would technically uh, implicate copyright and you'd probably get flagged for it. I believe that people solve that or uh, a kind of a stopgap solution is to put it to what's called a static video, which is just a, a, a page just showing maybe the album cover. It's not synced to audiovisual, even though it's streaming in a sense. And I'm not clear on YouTube's position on that. And I don't want to give anybody legal advice. I especially don't want to give anybody legal advice that's 
incorrect. And <laughs> you're going to want to look into that. But I, as a basic thing, you can't sync a cover to a video, but there may be some rules, either maybe the workaround with a static visual image. All right. John Tate was wondering, is it prudent to work of a producer's agreement ahead of time should the artist decide to switch producers halfway through a project, rework your demos, or simply not pay you? <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yes. First of all, be clear, right? Whether it's in writing, in an email, in a formal producer agreement, be clear. I think in all things in life, understand expectations. If I'm going to do any kind of real business with you, and mind you, you guys have the production part uh, under underhand. You guys have the creative. You're probably great at what you do, and you, you got, I'm sure it'll flow in the studio, and you'll make some great music. All I'm commenting on is the business, right? And the business is, don't forget to make sure you understand what your business deal is, right? So I don't see anything wrong with produce a band coming in, working with a producer, deciding it's not working, and going somewhere else. I rarely, if ever, hear of exclusive unless it's kind of like a production deal I, you know a band may start working with you and it might not be working out and they may want to go try to cut some tracks to somebody else or cut the same tracks to somebody else that that, that happens not only does it happen but it happens every day this <laughs> so, is a normal so thing work and you're expecting to be paid for that work uh you know that's a different story. In other words, your rate in the studio is blank dollars per day or whatever. You know, make sure you're clear on that ahead of time. Do you need a written agreement? I mean, look, let's be honest. On a low level, there's only, you know, are you really going to go sue somebody over one of these things? And a contract is really kind of like a prenup, right? In a sense that you're only going to pull it out of the drawer if something bad happens. So you're going into what seems like a cool situation. Only if there's a misunderstanding or there's some kind of dispute are you going to be pointing to, you know, paragraph 12B. And so if you're talking about real low money or real underground startup stuff, you know, investing a ton into uh, trying to put together, you know, formal agreements and stuff like that, you know, you're going to have to do a cost-benefit analysis on that, right? But on the, uh, uh, on, on, at the outset, it doing um, something, uh, just being clear, about what the deal is and what your expectations are is probably a really good thing. I remember blood is thicker than water. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, relationships are, are the real currency, especially when you're starting out. And so if you're in your, you know, first or second or third time producing and you're really just starting out and you're already suing people, <laughs> so you're doing something wrong. You gotta, you gotta realize that at the beginning, the most important thing is going to be people's word with one another. And that goes for the bands too. So some band that's out there ripping you off, that promised to pay you and it doesn't and go somewhere else, you know, that that's not too cool look for them either. But at the end of the day, I would think that the most important thing for all of you is to maintain your reputation and live to fight another day. So, Keep that in mind, but to, to answer your question from, from square one, yeah, be clear about a deal. Make sure your expectations align with your customers. Andre Sin says, okay, I don't know if this is Eric's area of expertise, but as a Canadian musician, possibly a producer, mixer, etc., what steps should I take for working, touring, mixing in the U.S.? Do I need a work permit to record a band in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm not going to give immigration advice here, but here's what I know. Uh, our firm has a kick-ass immigration department, and we've done 
work visas for many, 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 many uh, creative people, some of which I'm sure people here are fans of. I can so get I you guys in touch. I can get you guys in touch after this episode. Basically, and this goes, this, you know, I do entertainment transactions. I make deals in the music industry, right? I come from a litigation background and I can dabble in that world, but I'm basically, you know, I'm the relationship guy that has the relationships with the, with the artists, the bands, the labels, and I'm connecting those dots. And, you know, I literally do the entertainment music transactions, but the cool thing is I'm a partner at a big law firm. So I have a badass litigation department. I mean, talking about varieties, top power lawyers, you know, uh, you know, the best women in, in music on the cover of billboards, like, I got that right. And that's, that's right down the hall. And down the other way down the hall, I got the people that are winning massive cases for uh, big video game companies. And I have the best immigration department. I have the best labor and employment department. I have the best trademark people, you know, and they're all at my disposal. So when you're working with me, we can draw upon the expertise of all these other people. Immigration isn't something I do. It's a highly specialized thing. But I do have lots of, you know, uh, bands that I work with that are from foreign countries who are coming here to work. And so the answer to your question is yes, you probably need to deal with that. And uh, I can hook you up with people that, that can help you. You definitely don't want to be working in the United States as a foreigner without the proper credentials. Great. Eric Burt is wondering, are there any special considerations I should take if I'm running my studio out of my home? I'll be bringing musicians in and out, and I'm wondering how can I separate my business and personal liabilities as much as possible? Oh, that, that is the easy answer to that. It's called having a corporate entity that you run things through or a loan-out corporation or something like that. You know, first of all, the studio should be potentially, you know, again, I don't want to give you legal advice. Every situation is different, everything. Corporations, though, I'll give you a, a primer on that. There are, there are two uh, big-time reasons to to incorporate or run things through a corporate entity and number one is liability shield and number two is tax reasons right so on the liability state uh, a corporate separate a corporation separate legal entity so if the corporation is operating the studio and somebody something happens and the corporation is it, the studio is liable it's the corporation that's liable assuming you've done it correctly and you've observed proper corporate you know formalities and things like that right the uh, uh, the second thing is you, you can run expenses and things like that, you know, and, and there are certain tax implications to having a corporate entity. But that's one big way when you say, can, how do I separate the personal from the corporation? I don't know if you literally meant, you know, put a put a police line, do not cross tape across the middle of your living room. <laughs> Just that, <laughs> wiping kids, you're over there and we're over here. That's one way. But in terms of, you know, in a legal capacity, you could do that through the use of corporate entities. The second thing that I would be thinking about is, of course, insurance, if you're having people come through your home and things like that. And obviously, you're going to want to deal with zoning issues and, you know, city work permits and things like that, running a business out of your house. Man, I got uh, $1 million general liability on my home when I was running the uh, the studio there, plus an umbrella uh, for another um, an umbrella that would cover 2.5 more. And another $50,000 in supplemental accident insurance for the gear. Well, there you go. Yeah. You're talking to someone who's done this before, and they know it's, nobody wants to be responsible for the, you know, for other people's safety and stuff. When you're running a business in your house, it's, uh, there's a whole set of 
issues that 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 arise, including whether you're literally able to run a business in your house according to the zoning laws. Yeah, I wouldn't skimp on it. I would get as protected as possible because you don't know what that day that the drummer decides that he's going to hang from the ceiling and the ceiling tile that's holding him up breaks and he hits the floor face first and breaks his neck and that's on you because he's at your place of business. And then I'll be the first to tell you that there are a lot of scumbag lawyers out there, right? And there's clearly going to be <laughs> some guy that's going to claim that that drummer was the next Neil Part and boy, his future income was going to be a whole lot of money and we're responsible for it. Yeah, so you want to be protected. You definitely want to be protected. So Paul Gorman is asking, when bands talk about being fucked by a label vaguely, what are some of those issues you face with your musicians, like bands not getting enough royalties, and what steps can you take to protect yourself from label issues? Well, I mean, labels, I see, it's so funny, a lot of people come into the situation, labels have been vilified, in part because some of the work that I did on the litigation for years and years and years, you know, there's this idea that the label's your enemy. I see the label as a valuable business partner, made partner <laughs> someone that can facilitate a lot of these things. And so getting, you can get fucked by anybody. You can get fucked by a label. You can get fucked by uh, uh, a lawyer. You can get fucked by a manager. You can get fucked by your bandmates, right? Or, uh, But at the end of the day, in terms of specific issues relating to either producers and labels or bands and labels, uh, you know, record labels are in charge uh, and they get their money from primarily from the exploitation of recorded music. And yet they're still to this day, even though recorded music is so depressed in terms of the economic realities of what could be realized from master recordings to this day, these labels are still responsible primarily for breaking the band in terms of promotion and marketing and funding radio campaigns and things like that. So, there's a lot of pressure on these people. And I think probably the biggest thing, you know, you say, oh, are they getting crappy royalties? It sounds like that kind of question comes from, you know, a misunderstanding of how the economics work. So number one, you want to understand going into the deal. You see a theme on everything I talk about. Well, mm-hmm. Understand what you're getting into, what the deal is, how you get paid. And, you know, if you're working with me, I'm going to walk you through. I'm going to tell you. You make 10 bucks, here's how it all breaks down under this deal. And if we can get the royalty up here, here's how that will implicate that. And, you know, uh, at the same time, the thing that I think is the most common dispute is it arises more from the creative. I think when, when people understand each other, they move into the deal and they all kind of think, you know, we all, okay, we're going to go make a record and this is how much we're going to spend and we're going to hire IL as the producer and we're going to, we're off to the races. You get this much tour support and this much for a video, and they, you know, and everybody understands they're all happy and boom. And guess what? It doesn't work because most of them don't. <laughs> most of them don't. The entertainment business is built on a model of throw ten against the wall and hope two of them work. And then hope those two work so well that it finances the eight that failed. And that's my business too, and everything else, right? So you know, a lot of people who are smart and see on a the in the business. They operate like a stock portfolio. You got a couple high risk, high reward. You got some solid owners. You've got some that aren't working so well, and you cut bait and you move things in and out out of that portfolio. And hopefully, in the aggregate, you're making money. But here's what happens: you, this you band, this is your most important thing. This is your life and your career. And you get in there, and people don't react right away. And a lot of bands, sometimes bands are right that labels 
fuck them because they move off it too quick. They don't stick with it. They don't give it the time of day. They make some poor decisions. They do, the, the record doesn't connect. It doesn't make the money they want. And they, and they cut bait. And, and when I say cut bait, it doesn't mean drop you. It means effectively cut bait. It means stop spending. It means stop cheating for the stars. Redeploy assets to, <laughs> right. to, to another, another priority. Yeah. Hot thing that just came through. That's where the real tension starts because you think that you're great and that everything you did, and it's their fault that they didn't uh, uh, deploy those assets correctly. They think, hey, man, this is a business, and I understand it's important for you, but I'm on to the next one. And But you're stuck there. And so you need that money because Motley Crue wants to take you out on tour in Europe. They don't want to spend it. And you're like, and by the way, Motley Crue's gone, but the, uh, Guns N' Roses is going to take you to South America, and you only need all the plane tickets to get there. And the label says we sold 4,210 records. And I don't know if anyone going in Argentina to see you play at uh, 6 o'clock on a stadium tour is really going to really care about your record. So, no. And you're going to go, oh, my God, I had a chance to go to South America. This label won't pay for me. Right? That's where the problems arise, right? How about the problem where they want you, they, your recording budget is X, and they, and they want you to go in with some guy you never heard of, and you want to pay Y and you want to hire I Al because he's your boy and you listen to his podcast, you know he's great. And they won't do it. You say, why not? That's all I need. I could have I Al produce my record. I'd be this, you know? That's, that's where, how do, you, how do you avoid those things? Sadly, relationships, communication, I can't, uh, monitoring expectations, and success, I guess. I've got one. Gonna, yeah, go. My first year touring with Doth. So. Our first uh, tour was right when Job for a Cowboy was was like blowing up. So it was us, Job for a Cowboy, and Acacia Strain, and it was sold out everywhere. And then we went to Europe with Job for a Cowboy in April and on Earth. Then we came back, and then we did U.S. Ozfest that year, and Summer Slaughter as well, back to back. And then we got offered Demu Borgir, Amana Marth, Europe. First of three. Killer tour. Right? A Monomarth, Demu Borgir co-headliner, and we would be first of three. That's it. Roadrunner turned us down because of the tour support. Right. And how much did that crush you and piss you off? Because it's not the worst people on the planet, and they're ruining your career. Dude, I broke lots of bottles that night. I was so bummed out. (laughs) What you didn't take into account was the fact that they are not the worst people in the world and they didn't ruin your career. In fact, they spent a ton of money to get you to that point where you were even in a position to take that. Yeah, no, I I realized that. At the time, I realized that within 15 minutes of chilling out. And by the way, do you think that if you're at Label X and Label X doesn't want to pay for you to do Y or Z, and it's not in the contract that they have to, and the manager doesn't have the leverage to kind of force them to, relationship-wise, do you think screaming and talking crap about your label in the in the press, no. yelling at the president and shooting off, you know, crazed all-caps emails at 3 in the morning is going to get you that money? Of course not. Never did that, by the way. I've been telling, I have one particular artist right now that's in a situation where they're not too happy or they're wondering what their situation is. And they, you know, they want to, they want to fight. They want to fight for their career. I'm telling them it's like you're in when you're in a contract, and the label doesn't want to let you go because they know they could just put out the record, not promote it very much, make X because there's a built-in fan base. 
and you know the the deal's not that expensive and you know you want them to go for it you want them to spend tons of money on an active rock radio campaign and they just don't want to and or you want that tour support and they don't want to spend it and you, you're trying to fight it's i tell people it's like you're in the handcuffs the cops got you you're you're in cuffs you're sitting in the back of the car right mm-hmm. at this point what do you do? Are you going to spit on a cop? you going to kick? you going to fight? you scream? Tell him to F off? Tell me, how is that going to help your situation? <laughs> it's not going to help your situation. It's going to make it worse. What you got to do at that point is go, I get it. I understand. Okay. And then go talk to your team about what your strategy is for how you either change the state of affairs in terms of uh, your success and convince the label that you are worth spending more money on or you get out. And how do you get out? You know, you talk to a lawyer, you talk to a manager, and you talk about what your options are. Sometimes your options aren't many for the moment. You need to ride out this record cycle and realize that you're just not gonna get what you want. And, uh, you know, sorry, that's the cold hard reality sometimes. So how do you prevent yourself from getting fucked by a label? Good team, good relationships, and success. Uh, When it starts to turn sour, try to you know handle it maturely and all, let me also just add that i don't think roadrunner were fucking us by not giving us the tour support i mean they had their reasons they had dumped hundreds of thousands into us and maybe our record sales weren't strong enough to justify that extra tour support for me as a band member it would have been fuck yeah ozfest and then demu borgir Marth, fuck yeah bro but like Maybe the numbers didn't add up. And uh, that doesn't mean they were fucking us over. That just means they're being smart business people. I am not only, and I don't, I'm not aware of that specific detail of that situation, but I would say this. It's not only that the maybe the numbers didn't add up. Of course they didn't add up because these people are professionals. You've done this once with your band for the most part. They do it every day. <laughs> they do yeah. 40 bands a year. They have a pretty good sense of how much extra you're going to sell from that Demorborg year Amon Amar tour in Europe. And they have a pretty good, and they're in the business of selling records. So they look at it and think about this. If you need $40,000 to go to Europe, how many records do you have to sell in addition based on that tour to have made that make sense, right? Think about it. And if, uh, uh, it's a lot. And so, you know, maybe it's just not adding up and, you know, I'm sure if it was adding up, I'm sure there's a very few situations where it's a super close call and it's right on the line. But remember, people, a lot of times this is about math. And it's simply, you know, you're going to play in front of this many people a night. And it's our experience that this will move the needle this much. But the cost to get there is this, you know. And that's where, I guess, label and band interests don't always align because you want to build your touring history. You want to get your guarantees up. You have other ways to make money from which guarantees fan clubs meet and greet vip and they don't maybe sometimes they do participate to some extent but for the most part that's your money so it's more than interest sometimes to have some of these profiling opportunities that don't necessarily benefit the label but yet you're asking the label to pay for that yeah exactly so um here's one from nikolai michael wallace where can bands go to find an entertainment lawyer to work with? Maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that the legal world is just as rife with shady people looking to make a quick buck. So how can we tell the good guys from the bad ones without just going straight to who charges the most? Well, there, there's a clear answer to that, and that, that answer is undoubtedly 
ask your friend, right? And I say, said this once before to someone, um, if you are so disconnected from the music business that you don't have someone who's worked with someone who's friends with someone, you know, you're probably not at the point where you need yet. <laughs> in other words, somebody knows somebody knows somebody, especially on the internet. Not too hard to find my name on the internet and, and, and dozens of others who are as good or better as I am that do what I do. So, you know, I don't think it should be too hard. It's just like anything else. How do you find an auto mechanic? How do you find a, a, a doctor? How do you find a dentist? How do you find, you know, probably someone you know who's already had a good experience? You know, you can go online. You can talk to people and see, you know, who makes sense. Who do you vibe with? Who gets you? Who understands you? In terms of motivating, for me, what am I looking for to take someone on? I'm either looking to get paid, I'm looking to build a relationship, or I'm looking to, uh, I'm so personally passionate about it that I just have to do it. Like, I give money to the opera or the symphony because I think those things need to exist, you know, not because it's a sound business transaction for me. <laughs> but um, I, So some things I just do just because this is just rad. It just has to be there, right? Some things I say, well, this isn't, you know, my personal favorite, but that manager's really important and he pays me in other ways, you know, so I got to do that. And then sometimes I'm, I'm looking to get paid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I promise that everyone's got their own kind of reasons why they take things on. And, it, you know, but it's easy enough to find these people. Ask IL. Ask uh, some of the guests that have been on IL's show. Or ask the guy that recorded your record. Or ask your other band. Or ask the manager. Ask the guy that runs a local club. Or ask the sound guy from the national band that just came through town. Somebody knows somebody. Yeah, they're out there. All right, so final question. This is from Adam Scali, which is, my band is starting to get enough of a following that we've started touring regionally. In doing so, especially when going somewhere for the first time, we occasionally run across the venue slash promoter that takes the money and runs or just flat out refuses to pay us despite the contract we had and the fact that we did everything we were supposed to. When this happened locally, there was little we could really do since it would instead just spread the word and would make uh, people refuse to work with us again. But when this happens out on tour, when the pay was going to be our gas and hotel and whatever money, this becomes a bigger issue. Beyond a contract, what are the other legal protections we can put in place to make sure the other party upholds their end of the bargain? Call the police. <laughs> get a crowbar no I'm just kidding uh, you ever see that Anvil movie you guys seen that I haven't the story of Anvil oh you gotta see that it's pretty funny <laughs> but they're uh, uh, there's a point where they're touring Europe and they show up at the club and like the guy doesn't want to pay them and it's just like uh, it's that's what I'm picturing right? but the uh, um, you know if it's not unfortunately guys if it's not a lot of money you know, there's not a lot you can do because, again, it's cost-benefit, risk-reward, right? Going out and paying someone to help you or going to the courts, even small claims court, which is probably the right answer here. And I believe in most places, small claims is anything under $5,000, something like that. But, yes, the, you struck up, you know, beyond those things or, or there's a, usually a cost in terms of your own time and energy put into fighting something. How are you going to resolve the situation right there that night, you know, in order to get you the food and the burritos and the, and the, and the gas money to get to the next town. Gee, I don't know, man, maybe get paid up front. Maybe make sure you have strong relationships. Maybe you don't put yourself in a position where you're absolutely screwed. If somebody 
doesn't pay you and you don't know the person that well and things aren't clear enough that you know maybe have a strong manager maybe have a strong booking agent i guess is probably a really good answer that the booking agent usually would have these types of relationships a lot of times at bigger shows booking agent gets deposits right and things like that i hate to say and uh don't be afraid to be intimidating. <laughs> I'm not going to advocate on a public podcast <laughs> resulting, uh, you know, resorting to uh, other means. But I will say that uh, the uh, I think that w- really one of the things that, that was mentioned by the question itself was the idea of, you know, uh, the Internet is a real powerful thing. man. if somebody your name is your is, is your brand and, and and and, you know, if I was ripping people off. And then all of a sudden, the internet was flooded with accusations. That would suck for me. <laughs> so I think the same thing goes for IL. The same thing goes for uh, any club owner, any band. You know, it, I've seen real, real quick uh, stuff go super, super south for people in the, in the course of like a few hours by someone posting on the internet that someone did something. And uh, you know, remember defamation. <laughs> libel and slander you can't be spreading up untruths that harm people that you know to be untrue but if literally and there's two sides of every story if someone so brazenly you know owes you money and refuses to give it to you i would expect and hope there's some kind of explanation for why but short of that uh you know you're you spreading that information and, and tipping people off to the fact that this person is doing that probably pretty powerful and probably the most powerful tool you have. And I imagine that if you're getting held up like that, you're probably not that big. You're not that powerful of a band. And so therefore the money's probably not that much. And so therefore that's probably about all you can do. Yeah. Bitch about it. So I was lying. I actually have one more question because it's a good one. Shoot. Okay. Here's one from Marty Williamson. Here's a question I'd love to hear an answer for. Back in 2009, my then-current band signed a record deal with Crash Music Incorporated, originally called Pavement, then Crash, now back to Pavement. We paid for the album, studio time, mixing, mastering, etc. The album was released, which had dismal promotion on their part, and we were told that we would get regular statements and we would receive 50% royalties because we paid for the album to be made. We never saw a penny nor a statement. The label had a deal with EMI for distro and other purposes, and now, still years later, if I upload any of the music to the net, I get warnings and legal actions about copyright infringement. I've often pondered pursuing some legal action, but then I realized that we're just a small nothing band from nowhere US. So I figured that, and the non-existent promotion it probably wouldn't be worth it. What I'd like to know is, does this happen regularly to bands? And what exactly do you think was going on behind the scenes? This crap haunts me to this day. Sorry. I know it's not mix-related, but thought I'd take a stab at getting some answers. <laughs> well, it, I mean, you said it yourself. It's probably not worth You know, I, you got to look forward. You got don't look in the rearview mirror. But I understand your creativity is your art. It's your baby. And if you're, you know, this is very, very important to you, um, you got to cost-benefit analysis again and figure out how important it really is to you. And if it's important enough that it's worth hiring a professional that has the right contacts and looking into it, maybe uh, you should do so. But I don't know the specifics of this situation. I do know that in the music business, sometimes corporations, things move around, people 
sell companies, move companies, move away from distributors, and things tend to, you know, especially things that aren't really that economically popping off, you know, get lost in the shuffle from time to time there. And sometimes it does take a, it's a bit of a chore to sort it all out. And it could be as simple as somebody doesn't realize how to get in touch with someone else or someone's moved or they don't know where to send a statement or the company was bought and who knows, right? But, you know, it sounds like a mess. It sounds like a chore to get involved with, but uh, it could be done. It probably is not uh, something without the realm of possibility that you could hire someone to help you look into this and take care of it. But I would start, of course, with the people you did business with in the first place. And uh, Are you in touch with them? So there's a lot of questions uh, uh, that I guess would be better addressed in private. Sounds like it. Sounds like uh, this is one of those onions that you just keep peeling back more and more layers from. Oh, I, I can tell you, I know so many you know, musicians, guys in bands, guys that had success at one point or something, and you'll be out at a party or at an event or at a show, at a bar, and they'll uh, come up to me and they'll say, hey, dude, I, you know, and I remember the song, or I know their success, or I know what that was, and there's always some lingering, this guy didn't pay me this, that, or I never got royalties, or I never saw a statement for this. And, you know, I just, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm saying, you know, man, you know, I feel your pain. <laughs> it's going to take me. 15 hours and you don't want to know how much I charge an hour and it's probably more than you ever made off this thing. So, you know, let's, uh, yeah, yeah I can, let me send you to some of my less experienced friends, but you know, this is one of those situations where it just takes someone being able to get, figure out who they need to be talking to and to get that person on the phone. Cause it's generally my experience that companies are not in the business of ripping off young struggling musicians that, you know, for the most part, you know, with with some exceptions that you read about sometimes on the internet and stuff, uh, for the most part, you no know one's that brazen. They, they don't care. It's probably not. You just said you're a young struggling band. So it's probably not not that much money that's worth stealing from somebody. So it's just probably some confusion. Yeah, that is probably someone's disorganized and didn't even realize that they owed the money. Yeah, so a lot of labels. I mean, people don't even know what they own. Extensive catalogs that have been transferred around for years. And, and mind you, there are some classic records, I have, some of which you probably know of and, you know, that are lost. And, you know, there was a time in my youth where a lot of these metal bands were on major labels, right? So there's a lot of talk from time to time about, remember that record that was on blank? You know, the, that ma- major label X still owns it. They don't care about it. They don't exploit it. So it never comes out. Nobody does anything with it. I'd like to get it from them. But they want, you know, an obscene amount of money because they'll look at their statement. They'll say, well, we're $200,000 on recoup, so you can buy it for $200,000. Somebody wants to do some little indie release that's worth ten grand. It doesn't happen. And it's not worth the time for the label to do that indie release. They're not going to, you know, their current promotions and marketing team isn't going to put this out. So it's just language. It's unfortunate. But it happens. It definitely happens. Eric, thank you so much for taking time out of your trip to talk to me and to talk to our audience and to share so openly with us. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I really enjoy the podcast. I really thank you. believe in what you're doing. And uh, I thank will you. say that uh, uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, hopefully uh, uh, a real cool tribute to Chris Cornell at uh, Rock on the Range this weekend. and seeing my favorite band Metallica rocking out in the pit with, with all my bros 
not worrying about contracts or royalties or anything, just pumping my fist in the air and yelling master, master at the top of my lungs, right? That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Be good, Ayal. Thank you. Have a good one, man. Have a good one. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for load box, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.